Welcome to episode 145 of the Left Behind Game Club. This week, we complete our Life is Strange series with episode 5, Polarized. Let's get right into it. You're listening to the Left Behind Game Club. Welcome to the Left Behind Game Club, our never-ending attempt to make sure that no game is up behind. I'm your host, Jacob Accord, and I have two friends here with me today. First friend, you know him, you love him, his name is Michael Ruffalo. I now get the hype. Oh, okay. And here to talk about Life is Strange hype with us, uh, our second friend, Flora Eloise. Flora, hello. Always take the shot. Take all shots, I like it. Okay, so this is, Mike, you want to say something? No, it's that's that's my life philosophy. Shoot all shots, you know. Like let's <laughs> Shoot go. Shoot all for shots, it. always. Um, this is our fifth episode in the Life is Strange series. If you haven't listened to our first four episodes, I insist you do that before you listen to this. Uh, so go through the feed, find it. If you aren't subscribed, hit that subscribe button. But we're here to talk about episode five today, Polarized. Uh, does anyone want to give a quick recap of where we left off in episode four? Because if not, I can just give you those those morsels that you need to jump into this episode. Morsels was a weird word. I think, you know, if if I'm trying to do some real condensing here, we went to a party. We tried to warn Victoria uh, away from uh, our, our boy, the, the Prescott. And mm-hmm. surprise, surprise, uh, Chloe gets axed. Not literally with an axe, but, you know, she gets she gets ba-boom. And, uh, and then you find out Hottie McCotterson, as Jacob early, uh, early <laughs> pegged him. Um, or maybe that's a poor turn of phrase as Jacob early uh, <laughs> named him uh, was the, the actual big bad throughout this game. And you begin this episode uh, tied to a chair uh, in a, a bit of a drug induced haze uh, with Victoria standing next to you in what is the dark room surrounded by Mr. Jefferson, who is now taking your picture and being an awful, awful human being. Real creepy, like yeah. I understand the like, oh, there were hints all along, but not in this tone. Like this was a a real tone shift. Yeah, I don't know that his performance here uh, is actually quite earned in the story. It feels like the tone of his voice changes, the texture of his voice changes. He starts monologuing at length to himself, like transparently about his. Uh, like his motivations, his psychology, why he's doing what he's doing in this dark room. Um, it's a very unusual turn of character. And it, I don't know that on a replay, I was able to believe it, even anticipating that uh, we would have this reveal. Yeah, he almost had two different personalities mm-hmm. and would often like oscillate between like being really vulgar and terrible to to her, to, uh, to uh, Max, and then like kind of be reserved and be like oh i'm so sorry that i called you a really awful name um are you comfortable can i get you some water even though i've kidnapped you here it was yeah it was it was kind of over the top for me in a way that wasn't earned and speaking of like the kind of double personality thing there's a little slip up line in jefferson's monologues where he refers to himself as nathan i think it only happens once but it was off-putting enough to like he's been covering up this story and like probably telling multiple versions of the truth i.e lies and um at some point he's been willing to blame nathan on like on why all of these young women have been disappearing and why they have been 
uh, potentially murdered. And so like that little slip up, I think, is quite revealing of that like fractured psyche that we're encountering here. Interesting. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I didn't pick up on it either. I think that there was a comment in the in the Discord from Settlebox that I keep going back to of his initial monologue, which at some point during this episode you relive, where he speaks about like a picture, essentially like setting up the fact that he takes pictures of women in his dark room in compromising positions, which foreshadowing, I guess, that I didn't notice until now. Uh, a couple things happen here really quickly that I just want to touch on here. Um your leg ends up being freed from uh, the chair, which is going to be significant in the future. Uh, your journal is in the room. Uh, reminder, Max has the ability to travel in time if she Look focuses on photograph. a photograph. I have to tell you, if you're not in the Discord, uh, because of Mike, there is a meme now of look at this photograph with Max and Chloe. It's wonderful. Mike, you're a gift. Thank you. You cannot tell me that the Life is Strange community has not created that meme already. <laughs> like, they probably have. Yeah, they, probably they have, have to have. Yeah, they have to have. But I'll, but I'll take that, Jacob. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Jefferson, you travel back in time using a photo to literally like hours earlier when uh, Jefferson was taking photos of Max. And that's when you really realize that, hey, I need to go further back in time because that's how I end up not in this situation. Yeah. So I, I think where this where we really end up is playing a bit of game of rewind of not only hopping back in time but also trying to make sure that you help um, the one person that comes to save you uh, survive and, and win the battle. Um, does anyone want to walk us through that? Yeah, I think that the first real jump, because again, there are several jumps. If you pass the one that I just talked about of her going back a few hours, the first real one is jumping back to the first day of class with Jefferson that you experienced in the first episode where you decide that, okay, my solution here is that I'm just going to tattle on Jefferson, which will change essentially all the events that happened after this. I'm also going to submit my photo to the photo contest as well. So like almost trying to get the best ideal outcome that you would get in like a telltale game, for example. Max is just trying to game it uh, from the start. It's almost like a Life is Strange fan playing this for a second time. <laughs> yeah. you know Honestly, I mean? truly, truly. Um, n- not really a lot of choices that were significant in this episode, which I think is quite the departure. Really, there's a bunch of minor choices, and then there's really one choice at the end. So I think that we're just going to continue to travel through time, both back and forth, and then just cover things that we thought were really significant here. Um, I think the first real significant Florida, did you want to jump in? Well, I, I just had an observation about this episode, which is that like the nature of going back in time so often, like when time when history is rewritten in the Life of Strange universe through these photographs, we see the photographs change on screen. There's like usually like a slow montage. I and love I noticed, that touch. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very visually pleasing, but I think the presentation works really well in this episode because it's almost as if like the storyline is suspended in time along with the photographs, like the music kind of like withdraws itself in those moments. And um, I just thought that that was kind of a dramatic attitude adjustment um, from the earlier iterations of Max. Like there's a sort of like singular focus here in this episode that just wasn't present prior. Mm. I thought a really nice touch that I, I question a little bit, and I, I know stylistically why they did it, but um, when the pictures change, like, between different scenes, it'll almost be exposed like you're dipping it in, like, a dark room set of chemicals, which 
it's funny because Jefferson uses that style of photography and not Max. Mac uses a Polaroid, so I th- thought that was maybe interesting and unintentional, but it was it was a cool visual effect. A cool visual effect that takes us onto a plane going to San Francisco. Matt, a bunch of different things happen. So I think Jefferson is arrested. Nathan essentially gets gets pegged as well. Um, his father also gets pulled into it. And uh, Max wins the contest. And you end up on a flight uh, with principal with your principal. Uh, is that Principal Wells? Yeah. Yeah, Principal Wells. And you're on your way to San Francisco because you won the Everyday Heroes photo contest. Which very jarring, given that you were literally kidnapped... Uh, bound in a underground bunker literally two minutes ago. There's not much to really reflect on here, personally. I think this is a very passive experience where you're just sort of trapped in your airplane seat and then you observe a few things like the cartoon character, or I think it's actually a video game character, Hot Dog Man, and then <laughs> Principal Wells has fallen asleep in the uh, in the chair next to you. And there's a sense of temporary relief, at least I think on a first playthrough, because, um, okay, this sort of inescapable situation, you've actually broken free quite quickly. Um, there's some trial and error puzzling in the dark room that I found annoying on the first playthrough. But here, like, okay, we, we have our escape plan, we're going, and Max is going to have a nice happily ever after where her photography is accepted and she's, you know, traveling to network in San Francisco and everything looks great. Um, but there's really not a lot that happens at this point other than just Max thinking to herself about how, str- well, how... <laughs> do it, do it. No, I'm not going to do it because this episode does it to us a lot where it says life is dot, 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 and then fills in the blank with something else. It was a very... So uh, <laughs> It was a peculiar <laughs> event. How about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I I felt like it was too perfect of an ending for mm-hmm. how early it was in the episode. If they had saved that that ending for just nigh of the end, you know, it would have been way more on some level impactful. Um, but yeah, it was it was a real like, oh, this is too good to be true. Um we know this is not how it's actually going to end. Let's let's see where it goes from here. I, I really just tried to speed through this as as fast as I could. Yeah, I don't want to say I was let down at that at that point in the episode, but I had expected some like Herculean struggle between Max and Jefferson and a real confrontation at that point. So I think it was like really weird to be swerved and be like, actually, here's your happy ending. Enjoy it. You find out maybe it's not the happy ending that you thought it was. When you arrive at the gallery, your picture's there, you rub shoulders with a bunch of important uh, high types, if you will, and uh, that's really when you realize that um, maybe maybe everything that you... Maybe, maybe this ending isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. I don't remember where this ultimately falls apart, mostly because there are so many ways each of these realities fall apart mm-hmm. and is lacking in one way or another that... I was like, oh, not only am I not going to keep track of all of these, there's almost no reason. Like, none of these are quote-unquote canon. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, like, it does seem like everything is sort of, like, working out in Max's favor. And then until she gets, like, a phone call, if I recall correctly, from Chloe and the tornado, as it were, uh, is still coming. So despite Jefferson being busted, despite Max having her art accepted, the, the impending sort of, like, 
let's say, butterfly effect event of Max's initial choice in episode one is still coming to bear itself upon the bay. So Max is forced to abandon this otherwise successful reality because she feels some degree of responsibility for the harm or at least responsibility to mitigate it. So we find ourselves back in the dark room yet again. And I think the the series of events really quickly is like, you use the photo in the gallery to be able to bring yourself to your room where you took the winning photo, you rip it up, and that has the butterfly effect of you ending up back in the dark room. But th- at this point, your journal and all of your photos have been burned by Jefferson mm-hmm. because he was so upset that you like had a winning photo and you just threw it away. And by extension, that means that Max has nothing in the room to help her move back in time further than like since she was ca- kidnapped i think i think that's that's the w- yeah. how that happens absolutely is um and it seems a little bit shocking at first because it like max's inner monologue is to expect that she can still avert this crisis in some meaningful way by using this photograph but then reality as she describes it breaks and then like that's why inevitably it's almost like fatalistic she's back there um without any photographs to lean upon and that's when you're confronted again with uh, Mr. Jefferson, who gives you several choices before he ultimately says, I'm done with you, so I'm going to drug you one last time, which will end your life. So you're given a bunch of different choices between drinking water, having the lights turned off, having some <coughs> music turned on, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of those things, like there's a lot of repeating and moving back in time and forth in time here. But this is when David... Uh, comes to rescue you because he knew exactly what was going on. He was the one that found you in the dark room by luck, really. And uh, you really have to just maneuver yourself into the best position to help David confront Mr. Jefferson like as he's sneaking up on him. Do you not send him a text with basically all of the details? Yes, you do okay. send him a text like in a in a pre- I think I don't know if it's in this timeline or the previous timeline, but at one point you do send a text message to to him. Right. And so the way that plays out is you know he's coming around the corner and it's a series of you need to wait until Jefferson beats or kills um our our guy and uh then you rewind time and press the button to warn him of what's going to happen. So at first, it's watch out for the tripod that he's going to hit you with when you come around the corner. Then it's, oh, throw the camera that's on the ground. And then, oh, I think it's like you have to like push the cart towards him with your, uh, with your foot that's exposed and then pull the cable, which knocks the light down, I think. So I never had to push the cart. The cart was already out of the way. I just had oh. to pull the cable, which knocked the light down. And that was the last one, which allowed David to run up, knock him out, and... Which I, th- I think you're then faced with, correct me if I'm wrong, our first real uh, decision in the episode. Yeah, I think there's maybe a warning about a gun too, because Jefferson has a gun inside of the cabinet on the left-hand side of the room. And you also have to be like, hey, he's got a gun. And that's when David runs for the gun. But yes, that's when we get our first big choice, which Jefferson's on the ground. David is above him. You are out of your, you know, uh, your, your chains, if you shackles. Thank you. And uh, the choice is, is David going to kill Jefferson because he just found out that Chloe was killed by him? Or are you going to essentially say, hey, please do not kill Jefferson? What did y'all do here? It's interesting because 
they don't play it as he will murder him if you tell him the truth. Fair, fair. They just play it as are you going to tell him what actually happened to Chloe or are you going to lie to him? And mm-hmm. I think it weighs on the like, I don't know if this is unfair to say, the emotional intelligence of your Max character at the time to, to understand what he would probably do. Um, but, and I know we've talked a bit about ethics along, along the journey of playing this game, but it really struck me as that, that Kantian critique uh, or the critique of Kantian <laughs> ethics uh, uh, of, well, what are you supposed to do if an axe murderer comes to the door and says, I want to kill the person inside? Do you, do you lie to them or not? And the, the Kantian response is, you know, you don't lie to them because that's how you remove their moral choice, right? You, you subvert their ability to make a moral choice. But that doesn't mean you can't do everything possible to, uh, to prevent them from murdering someone. And so I was like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. Chloe's dead. And (laughs) I did not realize you would not be able to rewind and uh, try other things. I I think it was actually one of the more frustrating bits throughout that, that you're not actively drugged at the moment. You've just used your rewind powers, but you can't continue to rewind and say that message in a different way that might uh, prevent him from killing Jefferson. Uh, so I felt a little bit cheated, but I kind of understand why it had to go that way. Yeah, I wasn't going to bring this up, but like since we had had our previous episode discussion about the trolley problem, um, I don't know if either of you noticed this, but the what you all described as cart earlier is actually referred to in the game as a trolley. And so I have this section in my notes just labeled as the trolley problem. Um, but yeah, but but yeah, like the problem of like universalizability and retribution and things like that are are. are I think it's it's hard to enjoy the story of this game while explicitly thinking in terms of those moral frameworks. But I, I do think that ultimately, like, Jefferson, there's zero chance of redemption for him. So I, I'm not usually one to say that bad people should be killed. But um, in that instance, I, I don't see a way that Jefferson can, like, honestly be rehabilitated or anything. So I'm kind of willing to let, for the sake of, like, narrative payoff and, like, thematic closure, let David take him out. Uh, so in this case, I think both myself and Flora allowed Jefferson to kill, or sorry, allowed David to kill Jefferson. Mike, what did you do here? I told him the truth, and he killed he killed Jefferson. I was like, okay, yeah, so Chloe, all three of Chloe's us. dead. I saw it. It happened. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, David kills him. But uh, I really think there should have been an option to... Similar to the previous episode, where you're able to navigate a series of dialogues with Frank to make sure no one no one dies, I think there should have been a, a perfect way to end this. Yeah, I, I think you could easily separate because uh, you're correct in suggesting, Mike, that like this choice is presented to you in terms of whether or not you tell David about Chloe. I think that could be itself a choice, and then additionally what David does with that information. I, I think it would be more meaningful to have some kind of dialogue tree or puzzle like that to to kind of pull those two apart so David might actually take the more like pacifistic option. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, first, I, I don't, sorry, I don't think we talked about this, but uh, I feel extra redeemed that I, I feel like, while Jacob was right about quote-unquote Hottie McHodderson, <laughs> I feel like oh. I was right about David. Uh, and I feel... Fair. I feel like it would have been the right move to for his arc 
to show that progress of, yeah, he was willing to go to therapy and counseling. He was willing to take actions to be a new man and to, to be a different person um, for him to not do the thing that was probably most uh, easy for him or most natural, you know, which was to kill Jefferson. Can I bring up something that is tangentially related to this? No. We, we haven't have really talked. On. All right. Sounds sorry. Great. sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about the fact that right after that, you find out that Nathan left a voicemail on Max's phone that essentially in this timeline apologizes for like hurting Kate, hurting yeah. Rachel, and that he has been killed by Mr. Jefferson. That's something we find out, but we haven't even talked about that Nathan was killed in this timeline by Jefferson and kind of tries to apologize. I don't know how I felt about that. I didn't really keep track of who was dead or alive in, in <laughs> each of the, again, like I kind of realized at some point, none of these timelines matter. So I'm mm-hmm. not going to keep track of them, but uh, yeah, if I don't know if you, if you spent some time doing this, but if you look at the phone, there are some really weird text messages in each of these timelines. No, all, all that I really noticed is that, um, no, I, I'm, I'm actually thinking about a different game I'm playing. Sorry. <laughs> I was thinking about, I was thinking about near and how the menus sometimes are <laughs> scrambled. Sorry. <laughs> um, what about you, Flora? <laughs> yes. I, I didn't really pay attention to the phone on this playthrough, but I do distinctly remember like at some later point in this episode, Max receives a text message from the dog um like pom- pompadour or whatever like i think this is in like this nightmare sequence that happens later in the episode mm-hmm. um and and yeah like people are behaving uncharacteristically throughout but that's the one that lingers in my mind as as just nonsense you leave the room and that's when you discover truly what's happening outside the bunker which is that the tornado in this playline in this playthrough mm-hmm. has started to wreak havoc on arcadia bay and max is in the middle of it so she essentially like moves through a war zone down the main street of Arcadia Bay, right near the Two Whales Diner, um, saving some characters, not saving others. There's a few choices in here um, that you can decide to do or not decide to do. Um, for example, you can you know save a trucker, you can save Evan, you can try and save Alyssa, who's in a house and who can just fall through a hole in the floor. The fisherman's there, and that's really a lot of the minor choices here. Just a quick um, note on Alyssa. Sorry, I have to. This was the moment that I realized Alyssa is just constantly in trouble. She's constantly <laughs> just a damsel in distress, always in the worst place at the worst time. I just, it was, it took me this long in the game to realize it. <laughs> and I just wanted to admit that all to you. I guess that's something I more easily noticed because there's so many uh, photo based achievements that you have to take that involve like her comic relief to some extent. Um, but I, I'm glad that we're, we're touching on Alyssa right away because that was the, the character in particular here that broke my game. Um, and I had to, uh, like the game would not let me climb up on the surface that you need to climb on to then like coax her down from the ledge. It wouldn't let me interact with the surrounding environment. Like this is, it's a tiny little puzzle to get her down from where she's Mm -hmm. in distress. And, um, I, I think this happened two times where I had to just reload from the menu or close the game entirely. And um, I, I find like the fact that I didn't encounter that on the original game is yet another just kind of continual nail in the coffin on this remaster. And I just I found that in, in when you're trying to save a character in a slow, tedious sequence like this, um, that that's really discouraging to want to do the optional thing. 
I do want to give this game props. Since we started this series, mm-hmm. they had a huge patch, and I don't think I mentioned it last episode, but on episode four and five for me, they patched the next-gen versions on, I think, Xbox Series X and PS5. It's now 60 frames per second. And I have to tell you, it kind of is game-changing, having it like go from 30 to 60. Uh the game doesn't look particularly great. I'm sure they've updated some of the assets, but I think it moves in a way that is like very different uh, than when I started the series. So I did want to call that out, despite having glitches like you have throughout my playthrough at multiple points. Um, all of this to work your way towards the diner, um, where you... Essentially, this whole time, you're trying to find a photo that um, that your boy Warren has that can help you move even further back in time and help you really solve this conundrum. And so you, you make your way to the diner, and that's where, essentially, from my memory, this is the point where... Ev- is that the point where everyone is in the diner, or is that later in the episode? Well, there's two diner encounters here. This yep. is the last one in reality that you're in there. Fair. There's there's a Thank sort of you. entourage of, of the side characters that you can bring some degree of closure with, like Warren, obviously, is there. Joyce is there. Frank, if he is still alive in your playthrough, is there. Um, it, it's not the entire cast of everybody, um, but yes, there is another diner sequence later where... The, I, I think every single character model like that has a name uh, made it in. This is where you're given a very difficult choice. Um, what do you do with Warren? Do you before you grab the photo to move into the past? Do you kiss? Do you hug? Do you leave? Okay, so let me just start off by saying <laughs> I understand that there was the moment earlier in the game where you could uh, have that romantic moment with chloe but i felt like in that moment in time it came out of the blue like it felt like it was something i was not picked up on previously whereas <laughs> it seemed like they had been setting up some like stuff with warren in some capacity at least people had been goading people had been suggesting so i was like whatever like this is the end of the world it's also they're teenagers who cares here's a kiss let's go let's move on <laughs> to the next thing um but boy, can't wait to talk about that Chloe bit later. Yeah. Oh I'll just my leave gosh. It at that. So I've always thought that Warren was a bit of a dud as a character, and um, I could go into reasons why. But there, there are at least two or three distinct uh, moments earlier in prior episodes um, where you, if you want, you can kind of text Warren back. You can go see a movie with him, like little things, like to um, reciprocate his affection. And he's he's definitely a sort of like he he strikes me as a bit of uh, an over eager character, and this diner sequence was probably the easiest I've ever rejected like a character in a video game. Like I didn't feel <laughs> remotely bad. The game gives you a couple options. You there there is like a smooch, there's a hug, and then you can just decline all physical contact with him, which I thought was cruel but hilarious and and that's how i handled the scene in this episode <laughs> I, I again i don't blame you like this was a it was it feels like this was a weird moment to be like well is it gonna happen are, are you gonna be a thing do you how do define you define the relationship these? yes exactly 
And there's also a scene later in the in this episode, which we'll talk about, where um, you can kind of go and find Warren's locker, so to speak. This is in like a broken reality nightmare sequence. Um, but what you find in his his locker, I think, is like further underscoring my worries about him as a character. And um, we've seen him go a little bit unhinged before, mm-hmm. like where he, at least in my playthrough, beat Nathan senseless. Um, like we, we've seen some potential for some pent up rage issues and some potentially obsession issues. And just um, I, I find the locker reveal to be a, a very alarming one for his character. Sorry, what's what's in the locker? Do you want me? I'll just jump ahead. Like we, we're not Please. there yet, but like reality breaks down, and Max has to evade a bunch of people in like a nightmare sequence of flashlights. Like people are just turning corners, pointing. Like it's a stealth sequence. But mm-hmm. um, in order to get one of the achievements, you have to circle to a route that's just. I don't think you would normally find your way there because mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of out of the way. But then you open up this locker, and inside of it, it, it's clearly Warren's locker. It just has like all of these like pictures of Max and like these love notes, like this oh, just very, no. very obsessive. Like he, he almost like he has like a secret folder, like Jefferson and his binders of Max. So there's like a shrine wow. to this young woman that he's created. And like again, a Helga Pataki like style. Yes, a football head. Football yeah, head hey, shrine hey, in the Arnold? closet. Yeah, it just it makes me really, really uncomfortable to see that. Like, it's just not normal behavior. But obviously, there as a player, you can interpret this as this is a fiction of Max's worries about this guy, um, mm-hmm. where like this is her like anxiety about what could be the case with how his feelings have been developing for her, or this could be a genuine insight into the character, one that we just normally would not get psychological access to. And um, I I think I lean towards interpreting this as this is probably how Warren really feels. I don't think he literally has a shrine for max in his life um so something it's, it's hard to straddle that line but um, but it's more of a compulsion than like a like a like a crush yeah and i didn't see this on my first playthrough like i was only going through for the achievements this time i just breezed right through well breezed is the wrong word for that sequence but um i was forcing my way towards the conclusion of that sequence um only this time i i had to take a little uh, detour so mm. Uh, skipping back to where we were, so after the the, the Warren choice, uh, that's when you uh, use the photo to essentially try and get a best uh, playthrough, which I believe the photo brings you back to right outside the Vortex Club, and that's when you unload onto Chloe on every single thing that happens, and it's really like a long sequence of you yeah. just going through different dialogue options, but unlike other episodes you cannot rewind time what you choose here is is what you get and i think after that like um go ahead we've we've beaten up a lot of the voice acting in this game in previous podcast episodes and i think fairly so um Mm -hmm. but there is one exchange from max's voice actress um in this scene that i i actually wrote it down because of how it was i thought it was just really well delivered um at least it carried the emotion effectively for me um and she says i can't keep fixing everything if i'm just going to break it over and over again because chloe's response to learning about all of the trauma that max has been undergoing in these alternate timelines like her consciousness has remained with her it's not like she can forget about these horrors that have happened um and chloe gives like a flippant almost callous suggestion just oh just rewind it'll be fine just like it's not that simple max has been physically and mentally taking on this toll that is otherwise invisible like there's this notion that pain is something that's really really easy to doubt in other people but when you're the one experiencing it it's like the most real thing in the world and so i think that this is a moment of chloe being finally scolded by max 
And um, I thought the voice acting is really what made that a powerful line. It's not like the most well-written, eloquent line in the world, um, but it was a moment where, <laughs> at least contrasting it with moments in episode one, I really feel like the actor's chemistry worked well in the scene. I, I totally give it to you that that line is, the impact is dependent on the delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I also had so many moments, and maybe this is not a voice acting issue as much as this is an animation issue. There were so many moments in this episode specifically where it looked like the model's mouth was not moving. Mm-hmm. And there was like real variation in tone and volume and all of this stuff coming out. And it just looked like Jefferson's lips were pursed, you know, and, and not uh, nothing was coming out. So it was a really weird, frustrating, like, oh, I feel like I'm watching a dubbed movie in some ways. <laughs> The technical issue, right? Yes. How did technical. you play again? Xbox? Xbox. Or PC? Xbox. Xbox. Okay. Original version of Xbox. Uh, I want to bring in a question from the audience here because it's relevant. This comes from Matter of Joseph. Um, have you played Before the Storm? Um, and I'm going to extend that to say, have you played any of the other games in the series? Uh, Flora, because I think Mike and I have not. I want to ask this because is the voice acting good, better, worse? And if so, in what entries? Hmm. That was a lot of words. <laughs> I think I got the thrust of the question. Um, Before the Storm, starting with, like, it's a prequel that was released after this game. It was also mm-hmm. developed by other people, like, um, I think it was Don't Nod and Deck Nine, respectively, who have taken over the franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed Before the Storm, but playing it after Life is Strange, it didn't hit me as emotionally as the original Life is Strange did. Um, as to the voice acting quality and such, I remember it being good or at least not as bad as Life is Strange 1. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe I'm damning with faint praise there, but um, I, I there are some distinct moments and like Rachel Amber's character who is voiced in that game. Um, I think Chloe has a different performance um, as well in that game. We also have the introduction of Steph, who is a main character, or at least a primary character in Life is Strange True Colors. Um, I think there's some really memorable moments and performances in, the, in that game. And then I have played the rest of the Life is Strange games um, to the second half of the question. Like, Life is Strange 2, I think, has some moments that are... Um, I think the production quality went up quite a bit between those games. Um, even though I am, I don't really like that game very much, Life is Strange 2, um, I, I wouldn't say that any of my gripes are to be laid at the feet of the voice actors. Mm-hmm. Um, Life is Strange True Colors is, I think, actually quite fantastic. Like, I think the voice acting is, is top-notch. I, I don't remember having any like goofy moments or any out of touch feeling lines. It's quirky and it, it winks and nods at the player for sure. Like these, you know, some earlier games do. Um, but I, I think the production value has only gone up since the beginning. And I, I think it pays off um, those like animation issues that we were just describing kind of aren't present in those later games. And I think that's a strength for sure. Uh, if you had to pick one game for us to play in the series on the show, which one would it be? True Colors done thank you for that uh i want to finish uh joseph's comment where he said um have you played before the storm if so do you agree it's infinitely better than the original in basically every possible way so it looks like joseph agrees with you there uh okay so took that little detour but going back to the conversation with max and chloe that's when you kind of unload everything to try and get to your ideal future if you will um and that's kind of when the world starts to degrade after that conversation with Chloe, right? Uh boy, it goes left turn, right? 
Yeah, you make your way back to the classroom initially, which is where the game began in episode one. And um, Max is really starting to kind of lose her sense of reality at this point. Um, She's wondering if she's in a time loop. And we mentioned in a previous episode, a lot of dead birds being a visual. Um, The the sequence in this classroom, like all of a sudden there's, it sounds like rain or like, like Mm -hmm. almost hail or something hitting the window. And then you look over and then there's just kind of an uncountable amount of birds throwing themselves into the window and splattering across it, covering the windows like entirely. Uh, it, it's something that feels like out, almost like out of a horror film. Um, although the setting of the classroom, I think, kind of balances that out quite well. I think this was my favorite sequence in the entire episode. Was that because after all the the birds hit the window, your your whole window is just red, and it actually like red light ends up coming into the classroom. No one is noticing. And then immediately after that, that's when Jefferson is in, if you go to the back of the room, he's editing your photos from the dark room on his laptop at the back of the room. And I believe also he insinuates when you speak to him that like, I'm going to enjoy killing you. Uh, It's just, or something along those lines. So it was like, I think that classroom section is probably my favorite part of, of this entire episode. Thematically, not because of what happens in it needed to put that out there (laughs) and then there's giant squirrels outside of dorm windows and you take victoria along for a ride at one point this just it just goes crazy after this This any highlights that y'all want to cover yeah it was it was the moment when reality starts breaking down and it becomes surreal i think it's the best way to describe it was the moment i was like oh this game's cool i'd like this game a whole lot more if we had like moments like this earlier in the game Mm -hmm. some of these like showpiece moments and i think it's in some ways really unfortunate that you have to at least on on in my view of it like slog through some of those middle episodes to get to moments like this Hmm. um so anyway yeah I almost feel the opposite in a sense because uh, th- this is one of my least favorite episodes in the original Same. Life is Strange. I think most of that is because so much of it feels like I don't want to be insulting and say like it's padding or something, but there's just kind of an unnecessary amount of barriers between myself and the next story beat. And so like like when you leave the classroom, you end up going like in a like it's like opening a door like in PT to the next reality of like the dorms. And like then you have to like go through a series of of the various uh, rooms in the dorms, which keep opening into a further iteration of the same hallway. And I just I I was getting impatient even on a second playthrough with it, knowing what to do. Um, I I was I'm here for like the emotional like relational uh, characters. Flora, I'm I'm entirely with you, and I thought I was going to be the only person that was going to say that this is probably one of the weaker episodes because I, I come to this game and sorry I'm going to like just shrink it down to this, but like I come to this game for One Tree Hill, not Supernatural, which is probably like not the way to wow. play Life is Strange, <laughs> but I appreciate the time travel bit of it. But it's like the supernatural like butterfly effects, butterfly effect stuff. Uh, tornado in town that maybe I'm like because really the tornado in town was in the first episode and the last episode and then you kind of forgot about it but it's actually the story is actually not about we could argue this but the story is really not about Chloe the story is about the town and about the supernatural things that are happening Mm. to it I don't know and I want it to be about Max and Chloe that's interesting see the (laughs) the things that I was drawn to were more of the X-Files Twin Peaks stuff 
Um, and, you know, there's not a lot of the X-Files stuff earlier. Um, there's a little bit more like Twin Peaks where, oh, there's a little bit of quirk and weirdness and oddness happening. There's some, some Lynchian vibes. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's like American culture through the lens of some French person um, <laughs> in a moment in time. So uh, I think it's interesting that we, we appreciated different episodes. But I'm with you that there was a lot of filler or it felt like there was a lot of filler, except that if you look at this episode as a whole and you remove some of the quote unquote filler, it feels like the conclusion you get to at the end without jumping too far ahead doesn't feel necessary. But we can pick that back up later. The ending is bad, right? I thought the ending made sense and it did. the game did not make sense to me until I got to the ending. How does a polarizing take? Quite literally. Yeah. No, I was just making a joke about the title of the episode. Sorry. I don't actually think either opinion is invalid. There it is. I got there. I took a second. Um, I, I think we need to talk about mechanically how the stealth sequence in this plays out. Because it's like, what if Arkham Asylum was bad? It's just a non-section. It's a non-section. There's no difficulty in it. You just rewind mm-hmm. time until they're in an advantageous position for you, and then you walk past them. And, oh, mm-hmm. they caught you. Just rewind them further back, but you stay in the same spot. It's the easiest, quote-unquote, stealth section I've ever played in a game. Sorry to be so definitive about that, but it is. No, I, I think that's accurate. There was one brief thing we skipped over leading up to this like maze sequence that I want to touch on, and then I want to talk about the maze sequence itself. So, one of the final highlights of the section where reality starts to break for me is that in high school, or sorry, in the actual academy, rather, um, we have a sequence played entirely in reverse, including the music and the subtitles and the dialogue and like the physical motion of what is happening on screen. I thought that that was just a really cool thing, like back to the presentation discussion about like, how would I want these episodes to feel beat by beat? I think that that was a really effective choice of, of how to show reality, you know, falling apart and shattering. But to the maze itself, this is, I think, hands down, and I'm including the bottle sequence. I think it's my least favorite part in the game. I was not in terribly or terribly frustrated, but when you fail, it feels like you're wasting your time. I've never liked stealth sequences in games. I think that that's that's an open secret if you see my like gaming catalog. But like in a sequence like this, the the voice back to that again. Like the amount of times that you hear the word Max, like just kind of like contextless like just thrown at you uh i find it just to be a draining scene to encounter and um the game even has like the audacity to make like a meta joke about the bottles like there's like you have to actually find the bottles in the junkyard again which i i have to imagine that at the time of reception that was maybe the least popular section in the game uh but just the cheekiness of that on top of a sequence that i was also not enjoying other than in terms of the visual presentation was really just it it was a bummer to cap off this episodic series with something that I found so dull I appreciated that in a sequence that they were trying to build as a horror story or nightmare they re-included the quest to find all these (laughs) dumb bottles Yeah, because it was so fitting yeah it is for an optional photo though I believe right yes yeah because I totally didn't give Mm -hmm. an F about those bottles and just blasted (laughs) past everything 
Yeah, so I was I was pretty end. frustrated. So I, I yeah. was the same. I was like, I need to get through this because every character is just like also showing you the most evil version of themselves. Mm-hmm. So you get Nathan essentially like being a crazed version of himself, and Jefferson the same. Principal Wells trying to catch you. So I again just wanted to make it through as fast as possible. Uh, we talked about it earlier, but I think it's also worth mentioning as well that during the sequ- that sequence, you go through the dorms, you go through a maze. Uh, at one point you're back in the dark room and there's a series of like almost flashbacks or flash forwards where different characters on the couch in the dark room are doing different things. Uh, at one point, for example, uh, Chloe is on the couch with Mark and uh, they are having an intimate relationship. Uh, another version of Max and Chloe are together and ha- probably getting intimate. And Chloe at one point is in her Victoria. underwear uh, Vic, uh, Victoria, Victoria's in her underwear, jumping up and down on the couch. No, 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 no. Sorry, I was also. There's a Chloe yes. and Victoria yes. moment. Yes, there's a Chloe Victoria moment, and then Chloe is jumping up and down in her underwear on the couch, which I, Flora. Uh, this strikes me as something I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill about, but I was thinking about like from a writing perspective when playing this episode on the second time through, and there's this like portrayal and association of like voyeurism towards young women, like in in Jefferson's character, that's just like it's associated with criminality and like like psychopathy and just like just being inherently wrong, and yet the game wants to show us so many of these like young women scantily clad being intimate, like whatever, like I don't. Of course, I don't mind that stuff at all, but like it seems like the game wants to critique it, and yet it is still doing the same thing, but in a way that doesn't convince me that it's self-aware. Um, I felt that way again in a prior episode with like the swimming pool scene. Um, it, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. It's the fact that I get a sense that the game wants the player to think critically about it, and yet fails to deliver a critical, like thoughtful approach in that regard. I don't know. Uh, it was yeah, that was a weird moment, but I appreciated all the weird as like reality is falling apart and again it might just be like a showcase of max's insecurities like maybe she's like she's feeling like some sort of like jealousy over chloe and who she's intimate with and like maybe she like those like sort of worst fears corner of your mind the things that you don't really even want to admit to yourself because you know they sound a little bit out there um i i think that that's one potential way to read what we're seeing in these sequences final sequence of the game i mean you make your way through the maze you end up in a bathroom where there's a series of four-digit codes on the walls. You have to figure out which code applies. It's the one, only one that's in the mirror, which I think is maybe fitting. Uh, you make your way out. Uh, you make your way to the diner. We mentioned this before. Every character that you have interacted with in the entire story is there, and you can speak to them and essentially conclude or close off each story or get the most positive version of each character, and that's when you're faced with the final decision in the game. Anything we want to touch on before we talk about that? Okay. Uh, I'll set up that final decision. (sighs) Essentially, Chloe comes to you. You're in front of the lighthouse, which is the thing that you're making your way towards in the maze. And Chloe realizes that in every single timeline, she is the problem. She dies in every timeline, and in every timeline where she does not die, terrible things happen to the people around her, uh, either one or many people in the case of this tornado. So you're faced with a final choice. Chloe says, well, either I die and I reset the timeline, or that it really like going Marvel, if you will, uh, where it's, re- if, if you allow me to live, it, everything's going to get destroyed in Arcadia Bay. If you allow me to die... Everyone will be safe. Which one did you choose? 
And this was the moment that I'm like, oh, that's what we've been building this all up to. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I could not piece it together why all of these weird events were happening in the world. Like the double eclipse and the whales washing up on the beach and, you know, every weird event. I was like, this is strange. Uh, why is this happening? Strange. Um, sorry, I just I had to for Flora. Strange. Um, <laughs> uh, I I just couldn't piece it together. And then when it was then when it was explained, I was like, I'm a dummy. Like, yeah, of course, of course, I could not piece those threads together. Um, so it gave me it gave me some appreciation in a game where I felt like everything else you could see coming and could see how it was all going to piece together. And maybe everyone else called you know saw it ahead of time. But I just know I didn't. I didn't either. Yeah, I don't know that I saw it, um, the connection clearly the first playthrough. Um, and I think maybe those sort of delayed realizations are part of why I enjoyed this game so much on the first playthrough. I, I think that um, like many of these choice-based adventure games, uh, very few of them hold up to a proper full replay, like where you try out all of the other decisions and stuff. Um, and then kind of knowing the the significance of the tornado in the very beginning, like when you first see it in episode one, um, it, it definitely didn't feel as mysterious and impending. It just it reminded me of the choice that we're going to have to make here. Um. I think it's probably best here that Mike and I go first, Flora, because I'd yeah. love to know what you did the first time and then the second time here. I agree. Uh, I decided to side with Chloe and sacrifice Arcadia Bay. She's wow. been with me the whole. She's been with me throughout this whole adventure. Uh, she's my best friend. If we want to talk about platonic versus romantic, we can we can do that. But I think like my best friend through thick and thin. Uh, I want to ride off into the sunset with my friend, and so that's what I did here. It was binary for me. I'm like I'm. This is my friend. I'm Screw so, everyone else. As a friend, Jacob, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, <laughs> so glad to hear that. Um, you might want to close your ears while I say my choice, um, which oh, no. was I took a Arcadia Bay. I was like. I like totally, totally hear what you're saying, Chloe. But also, you seem so right that if I do anything to save you, like reality is just going to continue to like crumble and fall apart. So it's it's again, it felt like a not a real choice on a lot of levels. And then also, it's like, will I sacrifice an entire town for this one person? You know, I'm pulling, I'm pulling that lever. The trolley is going after Chloe and not. Uh, <laughs> And, and not the rest of the town. So, again, easy utilitarian calculus on my part. Flora, how, do you, how did you feel? In both playthroughs, what did you do first? Yeah, so when I originally played Life is Strange, um, this was one of the first games that had like explicitly queer themes in it, uh, at least that I had played through. And so I was I latched onto Chloe right away and just kind of... I was willing to ignore all of her flaws and deal with her selfishness and her impulsivity and all of these different things that on a second playthrough, I think I was a lot more critical of. Um, and when I got to this end scene, sure, the sort of binary gave me pause, sacrifice, or is it save or sacrifice? How does the language present itself? I will check for you really fast. Well, regardless of what you do, um, when you save Arcadia Bay or save Chloe or vice versa... Um, I up until this point, all of the choices that you've made pretty much have been reversible, and this one obviously is not going to be that. And prior to the sequence on, like you're back on the cliff by the lighthouse, you're looking out at the tornado. 
one of the most recent things that happens in that sort of like broken reality nightmare sequence is that you walk through this like linear path of like memories with Chloe or like different versions of Chloe. And it sort of like takes you through a highlight reel of all the memories that you've collected with her over the course of the episodes. It truly butters you up with Chloe affection leading up to this choice. And I think that seeing how heavy handed that was on a second playthrough was really interesting to me because I didn't Mm -hmm. feel the heavy handedness on the first playthrough. So, all right, the choice. Um, Sacrifice or sacrifice. Sacrifice. Okay, thank you. Um, first playthrough, um, I think I was reasoning a lot closer to Jacob. Like I, I was in my head, I was shipping together Max and Chloe. Like I really wanted them to like be together, not just like reconnected friends, but I really did feel like there was potentially a romance budding there. Mm -hmm. And like, it was sort of like from the perspective of the player, like I see them like balancing each other out in terms of their personalities. Mm -hmm. And I, and you can see indications that Chloe is maturing and growing. And the fact that she even urges Max in this scene to sacrifice the bay instead of herself. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think that, that that really concretized to me that, okay, this is going to... I mean, it's going to be a harsh reality, but like maybe some of the people who are sheltering in the town will be okay? Like, it's just <laughs> property damage, maybe, because there was an evacuation <laughs> sequence? I don't know. And anyway, um, it, it almost strike, or struck me in the first playthrough as like a okay, I'm going to take the selfish path and embrace that and not feel guilty about it. And so I sacrificed Arcadia Bay. This playthrough, um, I actually, this was something I was intending to do from the beginning. I was going to sacrifice Chloe and save the bay because just thinking more, and and maybe it's back to the utilitarian calculus discussion again. Um, But I I not only wanted to see how the story ended differently, like there's different ending cutscenes and such, um, but I also felt so much less attached to Chloe in this second playthrough than I did on the first run where I was, you know, all of those feelings of affection just struck me as transparent insecurity in a way that um, like I, I, or rather immaturity, I think is what I wanted to say. Like I didn't connect with Chloe because she strikes me as, as someone that like in real life, I would probably dislike a little bit um, like, or at least some aspects of her personality. I probably wouldn't want to spend significant time around her because she demands a lot of the people around her. She gets in, like she's a rebel just for the sake of being one. Yeah. I was going to say she's an anarchist just to say that she's an anarchist. Yeah. I, I just no longer feel so much affection for her character. And so I was going to sacrifice Chloe on the second playthrough, no matter what, just to see it. But this time, mm-hmm. I actually felt like that was probably the thing that I thought was right here, like sacrifice Chloe, because yes, she has contributed to so many problems throughout these stories. That doesn't mean she deserves to die, but she herself is urging you to make this choice. And there are clearly innocent people whose lives you can save simply by intervening. Like she was going to die to begin with in episode one, if you if your magical powers hadn't intervened. So um, that was the pathway. I sacrificed Arcadia Bay first time, sacrificed Chloe the second time. And I feel like those were the right decisions for both playthroughs for me. Mike, I feel sense. like you want to say something here. No, no. Just that just that it makes sense. Like, I think your rationale is really clear. And um, despite picking different ones at different times, both seem like they were the right choice at the right time. Um, I, I also think the follow-up... Okay, so I will also mention... I briefly alluded to this earlier that there is like a kiss at this point. And mm-hmm. in my playthrough, it felt like this kiss came out of the blue. Hmm. Um, like I was not picking up any of the like Chloe and Max <laughs> vibes mm-hmm. until 
like there's that one moment in the room and even then it felt like it came out of the blue so that's why i didn't like carry it forward so this kiss at the end felt extra like whoa like that doesn't even reflect the choice i made earlier Mm -hmm. in the game this Mm -hmm. feels like oh maybe i should have made that original choice Mm -hmm. uh a different way because this seems like now it's canon um it felt like it was something they on some level were like no no this is supposed to happen um so i thought that was interesting and then without i think needlessly rushing us too too far forward I think the way that it plays out once you've made the choice, uh, at least to let Chloe let Chloe go, um, is really, really powerful, really, really impactful. Um, I mean, we're there. Do you want to do you want to jump into that? Yeah. So what I would say is beat by beat. Feel free to, to hop in and correct me if I get something wrong. But you're basically teleported right back into that moment in the bathroom where you're taking a photo of that butterfly mm-hmm. and Max is clearly torn apart because she's looking at the door she knows what's about to happen and she just has to sit there and not only just know that it is going to happen but like essentially bear witness to it in a lot of ways it's not like she can just you know close you know just not be there she has to be there for it to happen um so i thought that was really like potent and powerful and then the song selection i'm a big fan of foals I thought Spanish Sahara was like a perfect way to go out. It just builds at the right time. It felt like on some level, a moody teenage version of that scene in Goodfellas, um, which Flora, you're, you're cocking your head a bit. Uh, Goodfellas is, is famous for a scene at the end that was cut to cut uh, to the closing song where all of the mobsters are either caught, killed or uh, put in prison hmm. and, beat by beat by beat of the song and it it felt very similar to that um with with all the all of the scenes in uh in the end of the game timing with the with the rise rising tension in spanish sahara jacob what happens in your version well like that's that's like in comparison that's lame so so it sounds like wait the butterfly is lame or yours is no mine is lame in comparison yeah Sure. Uh, so the song is Sid Matters Obstacles. Uh, I had a glitch where like I had no sound in my finale, so oh, I had to go no. watch it on. I so I watched it on YouTube. It's fine. Um, but essentially, it's just uh, you leave Arcadia Arcadia Bay together in uh, in the truck, and uh, that's it. Like you you essentially ride off into the sunset together, and that's it. Yeah, that doesn't so sound really, as good. It, in your section, it's like some of the points you have to relive the trauma that you have, but this time without Chloe, right? Exactly. So much better. Yeah, it it's it feels like the thematically appropriate ending. Like there's even like a funeral sequence and everything where you see all the characters kind of garbed in black and just processing the loss together because um, surely like th- this death is going to leave a wake in the community like it, it wasn't just localized to Max and Chloe's relationship but then you see those pensive moments where clearly Chloe is still on Max's mind and um, that, that tragic ending I think is so much more um, meaningful compared to the simple drive-through of the rubble um, I, I was actually kind of astonished with it, I think I haven't timed this but I think it's actually a longer ending as well um, and so that's, um, like, like the, it's a 
several minutes. I don't want to overestimate and oversell it, but um, I remember the original um, Sacrifice Arcadia Bay ending being quite short. So. It's like less than 90 seconds. It's like 60 to 90 seconds. And so this ending, it sounds like it's multiple minutes long. Huh. It is. Yeah. I have a question that comes from the community. It's relevant. It's from Setobox. Mm-hmm. They ask, did you guys feel that the game's ending seemed rush or that there was a third option to the final choice? So I think the question is like, was it rushed and should there have been a third choice here? I'm going to spoil Mass Effect 3. for So skip forward 10 seconds if you don't want to hear this. Mass Effect. Oh boy. Okay. Never mind. No, no one here has played Mass Effect. Okay. <laughs> I've only played the first two. Okay. I won't. I'm like spo- halfway never through then. the third. How dare you? Uh, just just for the listeners, both Flora and I pulled our headphones off to allow <laughs> Jacob the ten seconds to spoil this game. Not worth it. Not worth it. Mass Effect Three. Wink. That's all you need to know. Okay. Um, should there have been a third? Cho- I don't really know if there if there could have been a third choice here. Do nothing die together so i i want to address the first part of the question as well um which is like do i feel like this was rushed um i i do not think that the choice at the end the final choice felt rushed in any way because you spend so much time reminiscing and building up to the moment in the episode like it feels like the episode kind of truncates all of its options throughout just to get you to that final choice and it it sort of adds support to that being the only decision of the episode but um, I, I didn't feel like the pacing of it was, was rushed. In fact, the opposite, as expressed, like all of the maze sequences and puzzle sequences and just things that I wasn't really here to, to linger with personally. Um, but I do think that, like, as we discussed about episode four, like the Jefferson twist was really rushed and we don't spend a ton of time with him as the villain. And he's taken out almost immediately or like very soon in this episode. So mm-hmm. parts of the narrative, I do think were quite rushed. Um, but the Max Chloe relationship, the choice as it's presented, and then the amount of time that you kind of sit with that choice. I think that that was about right. Although I think it could have been interesting to see like a little more narrative, maybe some dialogue choices, not actually major choices after the binary final choice as to whether there should be a third choice i personally think that two makes the most sense here um i like the play on words of the word polarized for the episode's title being both um you know like binary polarization but also like you know the photography sort of suggestions there too i'm not well versed enough to really speak to all of that but um if you were to add in a third choice, it's it's hard to know what you could do that would be meaningful. Like a, I, I imagine that one would want a happily ever after sort of scenario where both Chloe and the Bay can somehow coexist. Uh, but I think that would undercut what we were describing if you do, in fact, sacrifice Chloe. So totally agree with you, Flora. I feel like the episode goes out of its way to show you that all of these other potential endings can't exist. This, there's really only this one and i gotta be honest i don't think the the ending where chloe can can walk away from this makes any real narrative sense because it's like if all of these natural disasters are going to happen because she is still alive when she should have been dead early she's evading her fate some like final destination stuff what is to make us believe that she'll suddenly be able to live a full life somewhere else. Like that this is only a localized thing within Arcadia Bay. So it just doesn't stack out to me. It also, it, again, it just feels like a non-option. Like feels like Chloe is supposed to die. 
um, it doesn't feel like it makes much sense to me for her being able to live. It feels like on some level it might make the player playing the game feel better about not mm-hmm. having to be railroaded into that ending, but I don't think it makes any real narrative sense. Well, I mean, that's the reason I did it is I wanted my, my happy ending, but it's I went through the motions with that, and I guess I was disappointed with the outcome. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I think also, like, I played this game at a time when there were no other Life is Strange games out. Um, there might have been Before the Storm, if I think about it, but that was billed as a sequel, or sorry, a prequel. Um, and so, like, it, it felt like this was sort of going to be the end of that storyline. Um, I, I think one of the listener questions that came in has to do with this. Um, if you want to... Do you want me to read it out? Yeah. Uh, it comes from Jay Danger Ross. Uh, do you think they could do another game with these characters the way it ended? Because it's been rumored that they are going to. Isn't Life is Strange 2 a direct sequel to this? So, I I can only speak vaguely about this in case any listeners uh, want to pick up Life is Strange 2. Um, but I there are some direct things that do continue. But the story of Max and the story of Chloe is essentially finite to this game. Like, we... Mm. Um, I, mm, I'm I'm resisting wanting to spoil anything, but there there is a little like wink and a nod that happens in one of the earlier episodes of Life is Strange too, where this choice will kind of echo through that first episode. Um, and so I, I thought that was kind of cool. It's almost like importing a save from game to game. But the specific characters involved are almost non-existent in the second game, and it feels because there's no time travel mechanic, like a totally structurally different game anyway, that um, I I would be hard-pressed to call that like a direct continuation or like a sequel. I I think the other part of the question that I want to kind of nail down is whether or not I think that these characters should get a second series game, um, like Mm. Max and Chloe specifically, would I want to follow them through? And like, as Mike was suggesting, it feels like Sacrificing Chloe is kind of the canonical ending here, or like the one that we should take and i think it'd be really hard to just rewrite the game um where chloe exists in that story um so it would be really really tough and like as a writer like that would i think that would be an uncomfortable way to like macguffin your way out of something um but i think it would be kind of neat to follow up max in the future if she did um have her powers somehow um but i i just don't think that's ever going to happen given the nature of how life is strange has become almost like a um serialized sort of different pocket universe sort of ip there are very few games that take a canonical ending into a sequel like i I think correct me if i'm wrong here but i think at the end of infamous 2 they there is two choices and in the sequel they actually take one of the endings and say like no canonically this is the ending that we're bringing into our next game but beyond that i can't think of any other titles that do that where they say, like, this is the canonical ending. If you didn't pick this, doesn't matter. This is what we're moving forward with. Well, I think, like, the analogy here is, like, Telltale Games, and I think of, like, The Walking Dead. Like, I won't spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't played it, but it's a really powerful and emotional ending. Um, But the threads do resolve in sort of a way that can be picked up quite naturally in a, you know, in a Walking Dead Season 2. So, like, I've seen games that are kind of structured like this do that well, um, but but as as of like an ending presented like in Life is Strange terms, the outcomes are so incredibly drastically different that I, I don't think that you can possibly resolve that without kind of boldly declaring, hey, y'all are wrong. This is the right ending. And I think that would really alienate people. So this um, would be the audience that would not take that well. Correct. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I want to read off one comment that came in through the Discord. And most of these questions came in through the Discord. So if you're not in our Discord, do us a favor, leftbehindgame.club slash Discord. Uh, you can jump in and talk with some fine folks about video games. Uh, this is a comment that came in from Link HS from the Discord. Uh, they wanted to make a comment about episode four that I, I thought was stellar and wanted to read it. So, uh, and it's specifically about disability as a burden in that fourth episode. So I'm just going to read it. Uh, my biggest two issues with this section in episode four was that they were only showing characters with disabilities as a burden to their loved ones and two, having the option to have everyone, including the player, completely disregard a disabled person's agency over their life and body. I know this is a terrifying reality for many people with disabilities, mental illness, chronic illness, so it would have felt better to offset uh, it would have felt better offset with even just one character with a visible disability that seemed to be living a good or normal life. They go on to say that they appreciate the strides that have been happened with disability representation over the last seven years with games like Celeste and Chicory uh, are great at portraying struggles with mental health while letting players safely interact with themselves and um, physically and emotionally. I thought the comment was great. So if you want more great video game discussion that covers, uh, you know, games from all angles, uh, check out our discord, uh, leftbehindgame.club slash discord. Uh, I think at this stage, what we should do is give our final thoughts on this episode and this series. <sighs> Maybe I'll start with Mike because Mike, you've been you've been silent for a little while. Tell us, did you did you like this episode? Did you like this series? I think I enjoyed this episode because it made it all come together. I think it was also the most inventive. I thought it was the most technically interesting. I thought it was the most visually interesting. Um, it was the most satisfying in a lot of ways um, because. You know, as you, as we identified earlier, I was here a little bit more for the Twin Peaks, you know, a little bit more for the X-Files than I was. Go for, play Alan Wake. Yeah, from, from the other <laughs> stuff. Um, that said, I'm glad that I played this with a walkthrough because I did not want to spend more time with it. As, as you know, sad as that might sound. I, I realized, I think, a couple episodes in that this was not a game made for me like I was not the intended audience for it so I didn't feel like I should punish it too harshly for not being made for me but at the same time I also didn't super enjoy it because it wasn't a game made for me like I appreciated elements of it um yeah but on the whole felt like I would have been okay had I not done it I am glad that I did experience it though so that way I have more more of a reference and touch point for you know, games that people play and like and can have better discussions about going forward. Are there adventure games that you really look back on with like Reverie? Or is it is it an adventure game, like Telltale style adventure game problem for you? I love Telltale games. Like mm -hmm. I feel like I enjoyed the Batman Telltale game that we played. I feel like I enjoyed yep. The Walking Dead. Um you know, I think some of them are a little bit lacking, but most of them are good. Like the you know, Clementine was such a great arc in that first mm -hmm. series of The Walking Dead. So, yeah, hard, hard to hard to put it on uh, the type of game. And it really does feel like uh, it was made for for a person other than me. And I'm really glad that it exists for those people. I just also know there are a lot of games that I play that are probably not, uh, you know, created for them. So, yeah. Flora. Um, 
let's talk about the episode first. Um, yeah. I, I found this to be maybe, I, I hinted at this earlier, maybe my least favorite in the series, um, mostly because of just what you end up doing, like the interactable parts of the game, I think are really just not what I'm here for. Um, the things that work for me really well in these adventure games are dialogue trees and choices that you make with other characters and seeing how, like, even the sort of stereotypical so-and-so will remember that. Like, as hokey as that is and easy to make fun of as that is, I find the branching narrative um, as a video game concept to be really fulfilling, at least on a first playthrough. It just it engages me just enough to keep me moving forward. Um <clears throat> As for the series as a whole, I think this game came into my life at like a really perfect period. Like I think it was, I I received Life is Strange at the time where I would have liked it and responded to it the most. Um, And like this is off the back of, I was really, really into time travel stuff. Like Doctor Who was one of my favorite shows at the time. And, um, And this is also when I had first started delving into like queer literature and just like studying the history of like LGBTQ rights and just things like that as well. And I I think that all of that was coalescing in this game. The music, as I've mentioned, is some of my favorite video game music, even though most of it is licensed, of course. Mm -hmm. I think that the use of it, like Mike was describing earlier and like, um, sort of was it the goodfellas reference um like i think that that the use in the implementation of music in this game is is stellar and as far as the adventure game format goes being able to time travel like rewind through your choices my first playthrough i looked at all of the major choices like i would make one and then i would go back and i would make the other one and then i would actually weigh my options and move forward i wrote an article my very first article for epilogue about how this game was like I, I think I called it like a Ludo narrative lighthouse or something like that, like a cheesy hokey play on the, you know, the lighthouse image in this game. But I thought that this was like the pinnacle of the telltale genre at the time. But unfortunately, um, this second playthrough didn't land nearly as well for me. Um, there were a couple episodes. I definitely think episode two would be a high point for me. Um, I think that when it deals with real world issues, like mental health struggles, like with the character Kate, those are the things that really, really work for me. Um, and seeing how teenagers grapple with that messy reality and um, sort of how something like a superpower can just destabilize what is already a really uncertain period in one's life. I, that all worked really well for me. Um, but the actual moment to moment, like, was I enjoying myself on the second playthrough? Not really. And I find that unfortunate for a game that previously held a high degree of esteem in my heart. Like, I would have put Life is Strange in my top 10 or top 25. Wow. Now, like, it was that that important to me in terms of what it did to open up my eyes for the storytelling potential of video games. And um, I, I am now sitting on the other side of a second playthrough feeling like I don't think I'll ever need to revisit this again. And... Um, I do think I'll always have a soft spot for the characters of Max and Chloe, and I will think fondly, like, if one of my friends told me they were streaming a first playthrough of this game on Twitch, I would be there. That would be a fun experience to just kind of, ooh, how are you going to make your decisions? What choices are you going to make? What are you thinking about ahead of time? Those elements of the unknown are really, really fun, but um, there's just not much here when you replay it, and um, I I think that's a bit of a shame, even on, like, a 100% walkthrough like I was doing. Uh, the article is titled Life is Strange, A Ludonarrative Lighthouse in the Darkness. Uh, it is from 2018. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes if, if anyone wants to, to read through that. Um, so my first playthrough, uh, on paper, having loved a lot of the Telltale games and then having a soft spot for like high school fiction and dramas, 
I thought that this game would be like entirely my my bag. And I think it's a mixed bag in that what I wanted out of the story was less supernatural and more what impact does time travel have on the relationships that these high school students have. And so that's why like I really loved episodes one through three and then parts of episode four. But for me, like the the game kind of falls apart in the fifth episode because of the focus on the supernatural and the fact that uh, really like the we're building up the entire series to who is like the who done it the real like Scooby Doo moment of like who's under the mask that is causing the problem and that kind of gets resolved like almost uh, in passing uh, where like I don't want to say we Trojan horse that like it was Chloe all along but I don't necessarily feel like that was earned at least like from my perspective so when i when i speak about life is strange i'm gonna look back and say like i enjoyed most of my time with that i appreciate that this exists i want more games like this uh both from a from many dimensions like a queer representation perspective from a like narrative like in that like 18 to 25 like year old time in your life when everything is a problem uh, in the adventure game style, like give me more of that, which is why like I'm super excited to play through Life is Strange True Colors. Uh, maybe we'll even do it on the podcast. Who knows? Um, but it's a mixed mix bag. Would I recommend Life is Strange? I would, with like a caveat of maybe it doesn't fully pay off for the player. But um, there are other adventure games I would I would jump into before it. I mean, I hate to always go back to the uh, Telltale's The Walking Dead, but the reason why a lot of people talk about it is because it, it it's great and it, it was revolutionary, especially season one when it came out. But even like Telltale's Batman, I think the first season of that is great, and you don't even have to be a fan of of that that IP to be mm-hmm. uh, to enjoy it. So, mixed bag. Episode five was a letdown. Um, but again, I don't want that to discourage you from playing if it's something that you look on the surface and you're like, that's probably a thing I would like. Music, character development, sure it's a little hokey with the dialogue at times because it was written by Frenchmen who don't really know American culture as well as they think they do, but um, here we are. Life is strange. Life is Any strange. final thoughts? Life is... How many times... What I need anyone to do is if if you <laughs> want to listen back to this... It. Someone's done some, it. Please, please, if you've done it, uh, find us on Twitter at Left Behind Club or on Instagram at Left Behind Game Club or in the Discord, like I mentioned before, and just tell us how many times did we say the word strange? Because it's probably fifty. But again, if you've if you've listened and kept track, let us know. Um anything else? Going once? Going twice? Sold. Sold. Uh you know where to find us on the internets, but do us a favor if you listen to the show. Uh, if you listen on Spotify, give us five stars uh, because it really helps. And if you're listening on iTunes, uh, give us a, re- a review and a five-star review at that. If it's going to be four or three, don't be four-star, Ben. Give us a five-star review. That's a throwback for you you all-time listeners. Um, but yeah, do that and subscribe on Apple because, again, all of this helps uh, the podcast. Find more people, get more folks in the community to talk wholesomely about video games. Uh, Shout out Ben Iannetta. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mike, where can you be found on the internet? You can find me at RuffaloM on most pl- most social places online, or you can find me at MichaelRuffalo.com. Um, moreover, you can find me in the Discord, where I will be hopping into... I think I'm the one that shares the most, like, hey, this game's free on Epic. 
um, or this cool thing just got added to Game Pass. Um, so yeah, if you wanna if you wanna be updated on that, that's where you can find me. And uh, and yeah, just hanging out whenever I have free time, which is not that often, but that's where you can find me. Flora, where can the fine people find you at? You can find me on Twitter at LudoNarrativeFM um, and as well as the Discord where um, every Friday we've been posting Yakuza GIFs and um, it's <laughs> it's become a bit of an ongoing tradition. It's so my favorite ritual. If you, if you want to come in and add a GIF of choice um, of Kiryu or Majima dancing at the disco, um, definitely head into the Discord as well. And finally, um, you can check out my written work at epiloggaming.com. Uh, recently just published a really, really, really long piece on the mobile game Near Reincarnation. And I have a piece coming out just after this episode on um, the recipe for Yakisoba Pond from the game 13 Sentinels. So if any of that Ooh. interests you, check that out. That's a game I want to play, but it's, it's still pretty expensive. That's a vanilla work joint, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, see, I see it on Half Off all the time. I'll, I'll drop it in the game deals section of the Discord if, if you're hey. keeping an eye on it. Uh, you can find me on the internet at Jacob McCourt on all major social media platforms, J-A-C-O-B-M-C-C-O-U-R-T. Uh, Twitter is where I do my thoughts, where they go. Uh, but more importantly, uh, I've been making daily TikToks for almost four months now uh, as of the recording of this video. Uh, so I would appreciate you dropping a follow there. Um, I'm posting about video game history, uh, about esports, about content creation, and occasionally some really random memes that I learned from 17-year-olds. So follow me there uh, at Jacob McCourt. Uh, that's the end of our show. Michael, what do we say to him? And that, my friends, is one less game left behind. Welcome to episode 145 of the Left Behind Game Club. This week, we... Exactly. Hey, I'm Jacob McCord. I'm Katie Lasbrance. And I'm Travis Colnett. We are hosting a brand new podcast called Cutscenes. There are tons of video game podcasts and tons of TV film podcasts, but we're going to bring you the intersection of both and talk about video game, movies, and TV. I know what you're thinking. Aren't most of them not very good? Wrong. Some of them are fine. And we're going to tell you all about them. Make sure to subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice. Follow us on Twitter at Cutscenes underscore pod. And most importantly, give us a listen. Season. Cutscenes, a video game movie podcast.